Welcome to the fifth podcast in the Financial Frameworks series. Financial Frameworks is dedicated to helping you create a stronger financial decision-making process by providing a set of interdisciplinary tools that makes finance personal and integrates your values with these tools. Do you want to be more confident when making financial decisions? Do you understand how you make financial decisions now? That is the key to getting better at it. And finally, do you know what you don't know about solid financial decision making? If those questions strike a chord, keep listening. This podcast continues working through the four applied concepts for analyzing financial decisions that I think are great cut to the chase tools, and so did my students, namely looking at decisions through the four lenses of cash flow, profitability, return on investment, and risk clarification. Analyzing a decision, problem, or opportunity has to start somewhere, and my experience suggests that the key issues are in one of these four areas. Today we will look at risk, how one makes risk issues as clear as possible in different types of decisions. Understanding the risks involved in making a financial choice is essential for the decision to be successful. For our conversation today, we will provide working definitions of risk so that we know what we're talking about and what we're not. But before we do that, I'd like to ask you what you think about when you think about risks in personal or work-related choices. Do you think in terms of loss of savings or loss of investment principle, or do you think in physical ways? Think about things like tornadoes or floods or physical damage. In your work, do you think about immediate concerns, like getting through the month in this COVID environment, or business continuity? Or do you think about what you will need down the road to maintain a career or stay in business, more future-looking? Take a few minutes now, or when you get a chance, and make some notes about the things that you consider high-priority financial risks, both personally and professionally. It's a simple task, but having these thoughts and writings will cause your focus to be clearer when learning. So now we'll look at risk from three perspectives. First, that of an individual. Secondly, from an organizational perspective, we'll apply highly resilient organization principles. And then finally, from an investment perspective. Individual behavior, and individual risk. This definition is from behavioral finance, a discipline that has grown since the late 1970s and analyzes human behavior in financial markets and financial decisions to examine how factors, including but not limited to logic, affect people's financial decision-making. Prior to the work in the field of behavioral finance, Economists built models assuming that all behavior is purely rational and all market activity is completely informed and that the markets are very efficient and rational. Many still support this approach to financial thinking. The definition presented here comes from an article by Professor Victor Ricciardi entitled The Psychology of Risk. Summarizing, Professor Ricciardi states, Behavior that includes risk 
is any action that will produce consequences, some of which are likely to be unpleasant or harmful. That's pretty vague, but for a reason. Dr. Ricciardi goes on to state that defining risk is difficult because it is distinct for each individual for the reason that what is perceived by one person as a major risk may be perceived by another as a minor risk. This difficulty presented itself in real life form in one of my classes when a student announced that he would not invest in anything yielding more than 3% because anything else was too risky. It was pointed out to him that he was simply keeping pace with inflation at that time, and if inflation went to 5%, he was losing money. The student was fully employed, securing his job and in his future. He owned his home, and he pointed out that he might be losing purchasing power, but he was experiencing no loss reduction of principal in hard dollars due to market fluctuations or loss of capital. Most importantly, he said, when he put his head on the pillow at night, he slept soundly and he enjoyed his life. That's pretty hard to argue with. I agreed to check back with him in five years, which will be next year, to see if his views have changed at all. Now let's look at risk from an organizational point of view. We're either part of an organization or we have to work within their limits as customers, recipients of services, or observers, so we're affected. More importantly, complex organizations spend a lot of time trying to avoid risk. What can we learn from them and apply this in our own lives? I'm a great believer in not reinventing the wheel, so if we can learn something from large organizations, let's do it. We will look at a subset of organizational theory for guidelines because these guidelines are both theoretically sound, but more importantly for me, are easily translatable into action. We'll look at highly resilient organizations, HROs. HROs are organizations that cannot tolerate a significant failure. I almost always immediately think of nuclear submarines. No failure acceptable there, major failure. Partially because one of my former students is a Naval Academy graduate who served as an officer on a nuclear submarine. Carl Weick and Kathleen Sutcliffe's book, Managing the Unexpected, provides an excellent definition of HRO management of risk. They write, expectations can get you into trouble unless you create a mindful infrastructure that continually does all of the following. One, track small failures or is preoccupied with failure. Two, resists oversimplification. Three, maintains a sensitivity to operations. Four, is committed to resilience. And five, holds a deference to expertise. One way to summarize these five principles is to ask, what are the questions I need to ask and how do I ask them so that no critical factors are left unattended? When the British fort in Singapore fell to the Japanese in World War II, Winston Churchill was quoted as saying, what questions didn't I ask? Since this podcast is devoted to applied learning, let's provide one example for each principle, then draw those examples into your financial decision-making framework. HRO's first principle is to avoid risk through tracking and preventing small failures. 
I'll use an example from their book, which describes a controlled burn event referred to as the Cerro Grande fire, which was supposed to burn a maximum of 300 acres of grassland in May of 2000 and ended up causing over $1 billion in damages to the town of Los Alamos and the Los Alamos National Laboratories. Three small failures cited by the authors were, number one, use of temporary personnel at a dispatch center, leaving telephones unanswered. Secondly, releasing overnight fire crews without replacements on the way. And three, poor timing of when additional resources that were required could have been anticipated. Each procedural error by itself did not create a catastrophe, but when small failures begin to pile up, the potential for catastrophe emerges. In your financial world, does an investment or a purchase or a rental have details like fees or contractual terms that require repetitive reading that are not readily apparent or clearly stated? Small details. Second principle, reluctance to simplify. We have to simplify things or we'd never get through the day, but we have to be careful. In Wyke and Sutcliffe's words, HROs take deliberate steps to create more complete and nuanced pictures of what they face and who they are as they face it, knowing that the world they face is complex, unstable, unknowable, and unpredictable. HROs position themselves to see as much as possible. One failure in this area at the Cerro Grande fire was misestimated fire complexity because the wrong system was used to predict how complicated the burn would be. In your world and mine, using the example of healthcare insurance, what criteria do we use to gauge what costs need to be covered? We can't afford to overinsure, but we can't oversimplify what prescriptions and what care we might need in the future. Third principle, sensitivity to operations. Simply put, HROs are sensitive to the front line where the real work gets done. A good example, while the bankruptcy of General Motors is receding into memory, it occurred in 2009, it was the natural result of accumulated indifference at an operational level to customer preference and production quality of automobiles. GM products consistently came in second or third to Toyota, Honda, or Ford in the 80s and 90s. Do you think that Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts managers pay attention to customer experience, pay attention to operations? I think they do. The fourth principle, commitment to resilience. Resilience is a much used word these days. Sutcliffe and Wyke have an excellent definition that is concise. Resilience is a combination of keeping errors small and of improvising workarounds that allow the system to keep functioning. The clearest and most relevant example that I can think of in this area is to ask if you have or are working towards or at least committed to maintaining a rainy day fund that will meet unexpected expenses or problems and support you for two to three months. Aaron Lowry's book, Broke Millennials, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together, is eloquent on this topic and is worth reading. Fifth principle, deference to expertise. In a well-run organization, and I had the good fortune to work for one for five years and know this to be true from experience, 
In the author's words, decisions are made on the front line and authority migrates to the people with the most expertise, regardless of their rank. Let's translate this into your financial decision-making. According to a report from Lease Trader, as reported on NPR Morning Edition, women are better negotiators than men when purchasing or leasing vehicles. If this is the case in your family, why wouldn't the woman be in charge of negotiating the next auto purchase? To cite Peter Lynch again, he frequently speaks of taking family members to local malls and then watching and listening to their observation regarding their purchases. What was a good product? What was not? What did they buy? What did they toss aside? And then looking at the financials of companies like TJX and Dunkin' Donuts to do further research before making an investment. He clearly deferred to the expertise of the intelligent shoppers in his family and used that information to feed intelligent investment decisions. The investment definition of risk. This final definition is more precise and produces measurable indices of risk and measurable is always good. The investment criteria for risk that I use is from Benjamin Graham's security analysis and repeated in The Intelligent Investor. He states, an investment operation is one which, upon thorough analysis, promises safety of principle and an adequate return. So let's break it down into three components. How do you define safety of principle? How do you define adequate return? What constitutes thorough analysis? Safety of principle. There are dozens of ways to calculate this based on a wide range of assumptions. I work from a two-part definition. The first part is again from Graham. Does the company have sufficient cash or current assets to meet a sudden and large problem? In one particular situation, he suggests a 30% cushion of cash that is 30% more than is required to meet debt. Part two of the safety of principle is a question I ask, are the reasons that I invested in this entity still in place along with its ability to generate earnings and a profit unless something drastic happens? For example, Amazon doesn't want Rivian's trucks. Walmart's profit margins become negative. In that case, the story is changing and my principle is in danger. Secondly, how do we define adequate return? This is where finance is deeply personal. As in, after performing significant analysis, what return satisfies you? It's a feeling, as well as a calculation. Warren Buffett has said at annual meetings in the past that Berkshire Hathaway shoots for a 15% return on investment. He is comfortable with that. He believes it can be achieved given the business model and all the details of that business model that are in place. Two companies I worked for required a 12 to 15% internal rate of return before they would undertake a project. You have no doubt noticed that during the past several years, bank savings accounts have been paying less than 1% interest, but deposits are still sitting there because they're safe and because rates are not that much higher anywhere else. So the answer depends on your situation and what your goals are. The point is there needs to be a goal in mind to compare level of risk with level of reward that incorporates your values in defining what is an adequate return to you. Which leads to the third point. What constitutes thorough analysis? Thorough analysis 
is an extensive topic, but the point here is to give you some starting points that you so that you will be sufficiently interested to do more exploring on your own, and yet what I give you will be useful to you. Thorough analysis means reviewing financial data that details a company's revenues, their costs, their financial solidity, the quality of their products, or their story, and the likelihood of their success continuing. Step one comes from Peter Lynch again, who has a great story in his second book, Beating the Street, about a middle school investment club, its class. They researched the stories of stocks whose products they were familiar with or consumed, like McDonald's and Disney, and their results outperformed many analysts. He even invited them into Fidelity for lunch one day. They invested in what they knew. You will do the same thing. You'll start with something you know. You'll look for profitability, determine that profitability is satisfactory. You will then focus on risk, and you will look for the disquieting evidence. You may choose to look at risk like an HRO, or you may find my following suggestions useful and break your risk analysis into four types of risk. The four categories are, number one is the risk of what I don't know. So I make a list of concerns and then examine it in terms of importance and rate uh, risks in terms of priority or likelihood or magnitude. Number two, industry risk. What is the likelihood, and we'll take a specific industry here, what is the likelihood that the electrical vehicle market will experience a sharp downturn? It seems unlikely, but I will research that before I invest there. Number three is market risk. What is the likelihood that the equity market will experience a significant contraction that will cut across all or most industries and cause me loss of principal? Number four is specific company risk. And this is where I spend most of my time. There are two parts to this assessment. Number one, has my data gathering been as complete as possible and as unbiased as possible, avoiding optimism and confirmation biases in particular? Assuming that is the case, I make a list of critical failure points that could cause the company to fail to meet projections. For example, using Rivian again, Rivian is reported as having a deal with Amazon to deliver 100,000 electric vans. What are the terms of this contract, and could that 100,000 suddenly become 50,000 under certain conditions? That would be really good to know. In other words, can I assess how likely that is to occur by identifying critical issues, doing the research, and nailing down the details? The conclusion regarding risk, and making it as clear as possible, is ask yourself this question and then gauge your comfort level. How thorough have I been in gathering as much data as possible, organizing it for clear analysis, being explicit about biases, and then presenting a range of choices that are based on facts. The problem that I will hand you today, we'll keep it simple and we will focus on the thorough analysis element of all that we've talked about in terms of risk. I am asking you to outline what you see as major risks for Tesla using the four categories for analysis that I outlined. Number one, what I don't know. Number two, industry risk. Number three, market risk. Number four, company risk. Tesla is interesting right now because it is in the news as it considers a stock split. Their earnings have been climbing. 
and this is a good time to consider their risk as they grow. I will tackle the same assignment, and I will post my answers to the question by the end of the week. One risk factor in each of the four categories I have listed. I will also make an attempt to quantify the risk elements that I identify. You might also, and let's see what we come up with. As before, I hope that this has been helpful to you, and I look forward to bringing you podcast number six. Next time, we will look at return on investment, another of the four conceptual lenses I use. Mike Lee Hinn. Thank you.